you, Bonnie and Linda. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to look over verses 1 through 4 today. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God bless the reading of his word. So we're continuing on Colossians, and last week we kind of had this, this, or not last week, but the week before, we had this moment when we kind of wondered, okay, Paul and Timothy, you're writing to us about, about these issues that you're seeing within the churches. You're looking at these human traditions, and you're seeing these individuals who are coming in and saying, you have to do this, this, and this in order to get closer to God, and you're saying, they're wrong. What gives you the right to say that, Paul and Timothy? Why is it that you're saying that? Is there a reason why we shouldn't follow these other teachers who are saying, you know, follow the Sabbaths, or go ahead and fast, or mutilate your body for the sake of what is to come? Why shouldn't we do those things? What's causing us from following in their footsteps rather than in the footsteps that you teach? Well, Paul and Timothy, they need to answer that question, and they do in these four verses. Um, And we're going to see how they do that right now. So verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now Paul and Timothy begin by focusing on a point they made previously by saying if. The if clause is based upon their being raised with Christ. This is reminiscent of what they previously said concerning baptism in the previous chapter, chapter 2. That they have been buried with Christ in baptism and likewise raised with him. And now so it is here. If we have been raised with Christ, then that will lead us somewhere other than where the false teachers are leading. But where should it lead? With that we are to seek. What are we to seek? Things that are above. This could lead us in a direction which would be wrong. Sometimes when we think of seeking um, as obtaining. Instead, to seek here is to be more reminiscent of orienting one's full life um, toward that which is heaven. And as Carson, one of the um, commentators I read, he says, Believers seek the things above by deliberately and daily committing ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and living out those values. However, again, this could lead to a wrong understanding. As we saw previously in Colossians, there were those who were um, entering into the heavenly realms, even worshiping angels or worshiping with angels, and believing that their ascetic practices that they were um, doing were defeating their natures. Paul and Timothy critiqued all of these things, saying that none of them had any value. So it isn't so much of separating ourselves from the physical realm and trying to enter into the spiritual realm. But if that is the case, then what is our foundation? The answer is provided by Paul and Timothy when they say, Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. There is a lot to unpack with that statement. Most importantly is that if we have been raised with Christ, then we should focus our attention on Him and where He is. 
Thus, Christ himself is our motivation, as well as our foundation for seeking the things that are above, because that's where he is. Likewise, when we consider that he has been seated at the right hand of God, it is reminiscent of Psalm 110, which is a very quoted verse in the New Testament. To be at the right hand, it implies power, honor, authority, prominence. This makes sense, since Paul and Timothy keep on reminding the Colossians not to rely on angels or lesser spiritual beings, but on Christ alone, who is above them all. Thus, the question we must ask ourselves, and the question which Paul and Timothy continue to ask is, if we have been raised with Christ, and he is the seat of power, or at the seat of power, and he is our focus, then why would we focus on lesser beings, or most so, why would we rely on other beings when we already are in Christ? The answer upon Timothy give is simple. Do not be led astray by simple beings, or lesser beings, but instead cling to Jesus. So now verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. They then use similar language to describe the full and encompassing state in which the Christian is to be led. Previously, they said, seek the things above, and immediately referred to Christ. Now, however, they say, set your minds on things that are above. And we see the difference in language, and it comes as a double-edged sword with the second half of the verse, which says, not on things on earth. What does this verse imply? Well, it's reminiscent of Romans 12 where we are told to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Christ, we are able to not only have hearts that are transformed, but also the way we think and how we think. Instead of allowing ourselves to be duped by human traditions and philosophies, which have little value or no value, Paul and Timothy want them to focus on Christ, where they have a complete and total transformation of their understanding of the world. False teachers, however, have been relying on things that are on earth. They boast in their understanding of the spiritual, and they claim to have had great experiences, and they seek severity of the body to overcome sin. The truth is, these are all earthly understandings which fall short of the true place of growth and the true place where sin is defeated, which is Christ himself. Verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We then come to a very interesting verse. The beginning of it is reminiscent with the previous chapter. First, when it comes to baptism, again, as we are buried with Christ in our baptism. Likewise, it is reminiscent of the fact that through Christ we have died to the elemental spirits of the world, or elemental powers of the world. If it is true then that they have died with Christ, then it is true that they have life in Christ. Christ then becomes the focus again for Paul and Timothy when it comes to life and eternal life. The question we may want to answer then is, what does it mean to be hidden in Christ in God? To be hidden could mean a number of different things. Um, The first is that often comes to mind is that we are hidden while on earth, but will be revealed in the future. And this further established with the future motif of being raised with death to life in our resurrection, which is established by Christ's resurrection, as we'll see. However, it could have a different understanding. 
It could be reminiscent of what we find in Joel 3. Um, And we may recall verse 16, which says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. And then it says this, But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Thus, to be hidden might have this understanding, to have a safe place, to have a refuge. Where is this refuge? God himself. Thus, through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we receive our life, our death, and our resurrection. And just as he was bound to his Father, so are we if we are in him. Verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So far, Paul and Timothy have very specifically focused on placing emphasis on Jesus Christ and our relationship with him and what that means. Ultimately, this relationship has already started. Thus, there has been an already motif throughout these verses. The reality that we can begin to seek And set our minds on things above, because Christ is above all others. And if we are in him, then we are able to do so even now. Yet there is a very true fact that we also aren't where we're headed yet, are we? We have begun, but we're not there. So it is, when Christ appears, so shall they appear with him in glory. Thus, if we have bound our lives to Christ, then we will enter into the same sphere of glory which he is in now. Though we can only seek and set our minds on where he is now in the future, we ourselves will enter into the presence of glory with him because of what he has done. In this way, Christ's supremacy is complete. Through him we die but also find we are raised. And this will lead to a complete and total life in him. Alrighty, the main point of these verses are to provide the foundation we need for our lives. If we notice, it's not found in what we do, but more so on what Christ has done. Because Christ has ascended, has defeated death, has defeated the elemental powers of the world, if we are in him, we can as well. We do not need other philosophies, other ways of life, or even other beings. What we need is Christ alone, by whom we live, breathe, and we have our being. I really only came to one application for this week's sermon. Um, And it's actually something that we actually looked at today in those videos. Solus Christus in Christ alone. In today's text, we receive the main focus of much of the letter thus far, and that is on Christ. In truth, we could say that these few verses are the foundational piece for actually the rest of the letter, the standard by which the rest of the letter will be dictated. That is Christ Focusing on Christ. Setting our minds on Christ. Not being distracted around us, but by continually keeping ourselves fixated on Jesus himself. As it is, it is fitting for this to be the case. Especially this weekend and this week. On Tuesday falls Halloween, 
And historically for us, that day is an important day commercially <laughs> these days. Um, but also traditionally, it is a day which can also be called All Saints Day, the day when we celebrate those who have come before us. And further, and more important to the point today, is that it is the 500th anniversary of the day when Martin Luther, he nailed his 95 theses to Wittenberg's church door. Now you see, Martin Luther, he lived in a time when there were many problems occurring in the church. In particular, and in the case with the 95 theses, there was rampant false teachings which were taking advantage of many people. And these false teachings were not being critiqued by the church, but encouraged. In particular, Luther's 95 Theses argued against this thing called indulgences. What was an indulgence? An indulgence was a way for people to pay to get pardoned. Because the church held the key, so to speak, to the afterlife, they began to offer indulgences to people in order for them or for loved ones to get out of purgatory. So let's say that you had a grandfather who went into purgatory. You could pay an indulgence and their time would be reduced in purgatory so that they could enter heaven sooner. Um, And the way that they understood purgatory too, and they still do, um, is that you you could spend 20,000 years in purgatory. If you pay an indulgence, it'll reduce by like 500 years. So instead of 20,000 years, it'll be 19,500 years. Um, Pay enough indulgences, Maybe you'll get straight to heaven, maybe not. Um, And so the Roman Catholic Church at the time, they took advantage of the people by doing this. In fact, the Pope at the time of Luther's writings of the 95 Theses was greatly focused on, as we saw in the videos, building of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. How would he do this? Well, he would use indulgence money to pay for the grand church. In Luther's home country of Germany, there was an indulgence seller, and his name was Tetzel, and he was very persuasive. Um, He would say, when a coin in the coffer rings, um, a soul from purgatory springs. You know, perfect way. (laughs) Very clever, I think, of him. I think a lot of... Hey, Dan, you could learn from that. Um, Being in sales and all that. Anyway, just kidding. Luther, upon seeing this and other practices... And finding no argument for them in the scriptures, then wrote the 95 Theses and then nailed them to the church's door. Um, He argued so many wonderful things in them against indulgences. And I want to just read a few of them, just, just so you understand. The first three. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outwards mortification of the flesh. So you notice, he's not breaking at all. He's just saying indulgences can't get you there. It can't work. Now let's jump on uh, a few more. 62. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. But this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. On the other hand, the treasure of indulgences is naturally most acceptable, for it makes the last to be first. Therefore, the treasures of the gospel are nets with which one formerly fished for men of wealth. 
The treasure of indulgences are nets with which one now fishes for the wealth of men. The indulgences which the demagogues acclaim as the greatest graces are actually understood to be such only insofar as they promote gain. They are nevertheless the truth, the most insignificant graces when compared with the grace of God and the piety of the cross. See, Luther, he brings it back to the cross, not these indulgences. All right, now I'm going to go through a bunch because the last ones are so good. Um, Verse, or not verse, but number 81. This unbridled preaching of indulgences makes it difficult even for learned men to rescue the reverence which is due the Pope from slander or from the shrewd questions of the laity. Such as, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of the holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? The former reason would be most just. The latter most trivial. Again, why are funeral and anniversary masses for the dead continued, and why does he not return or permit the withdrawal of the endowments founded for them, since it is wrong to pray for the redeemed? Number 84. Again, what is this new piety of God and the Pope that for a consideration of money they permit a man who is impious and their enemy to buy out of purgatory the pious soul of a friend of God and do not rather, because of the need of that pious and beloved soul, free it for the pure love's sake? Again, why are the penitential canons long since abrogated and dead in actual fact and through disuse, now satisfied by the granting of indulgences as though they were still alive and in force. Again, why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money, rather than from the money of poor believers? Again, what does the Pope remit or grant to those who, by perfect contrition, already have a right to full remission and blessings? Again, what greater blessing could come to the church than if the Pope were to bestow these remissions and blessings on every believer a hundred times a day, as he now does but once? Since the Pope seeks the salvation of souls rather than money by his indulgences, why does he suspend the indulgences and pardons previously granted when they have equal efficacy? To repress these very sharp arguments of the laity by force alone and not to resolve them by giving reasons is to expose the church and the Pope to the ridicule of their enemies and to make Christians unhappy. If, therefore... Indulgences were preached according to the spirit of intention of the Pope. All these doubts would be readily resolved. Indeed, they would not exist. Away then with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, Peace, peace, and there is no peace. Blessed be all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, Cross, cross, and there is no cross. Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, death, and hell. And thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations, 
rather through the false security of peace. All right. I've shared a lot of these with you. Now I'm wondering how many of you are asking that particular question that we always ask, what does this have to do with today's verses? Pastor, you go on rabbit trails sometimes. (laughs) It's true, but this one seems more than normal, am I right? Well, what may seem true at first, um, the truth is these things Martin Luther argued against 500 years ago, the things he began by arguing against indulgences, are the same things we are seeing in today's text as well as the text a few weeks ago. What do I mean? Well, remember what we talked about previously. At the end of chapter 2, Paul and Timothy argued against the necessity of needing these supposed spiritual practices. They argued against feasts, Sabbaths. They argued against the need for spiritual visions of worshiping with or worshiping angels. They argued that you don't need to do all these things because in the end they were human invention and had no value. As they said at the end of chapter 2, if with Christ you die to the animal spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This, of course, left us with the question, how then shall we live? If living an ascetic lifestyle will not stop the indulgence of the flesh, then can we say that there is a right way to live at all? The answer to this question is found in today's text, and that is yes. However, the focus is not on what you do, but on Jesus Christ. He is the focus. He is the one we keep our eyes on, who we seek, and it is Him that we keep our minds on. Simply put, we are all too often like the Roman Catholics during the time of the Reformation. And I say that because they did have a council eventually and changed a lot. Um, We may not have indulgences, but we do have these different lifestyles, uh, different false beliefs, which have come in and taken root. Whether it be the drinking of alcohol or the eating of certain foods, maybe it is by boasting in prayers or showing people how pious we are. Or maybe it's the prosperity gospel or the idea that if our church has enough numbers, things like this can get into our heads and they can dig down deep. But the question is, are they really true? Are they really part of the gospel? We tend to believe that we are making ourselves right with God by what we do, much like the indulgences claimed in the past as well. There is a problem with this, however, that we are always ignore. What is that problem? Well, consider what we read in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, what's the issue? Tell me, can a dead man do anything? Let's say right now, I drop dead at the podium. Who among you would come up to me and say, Pastor, get up. We got to get you to the hospital. Who would say that to me if I dropped dead right now? Dan's smiling like he would do it. I'd pick you up. Yeah, you'd pick me up. Thank you, because I wouldn't be able to get up on my own, would I? That's the thing. When a dead man is dead, guess what? You can't just tell them to do something, can you? 
They need something to get them going. Um, it wouldn't make any sense to come up to me and say that, would it? No. Thus the problem with humanity is that we are dead in our transgressions. We do good, but our good is tainted by sin. And in all honesty, even the good we do, which we should give credit to God for, we take instead. For though we can do good, we rarely reflect on the fact that apart from God, goodness itself does not even exist. So tell me, what good does it do to live a good life? The answer is nothing. Because even if we could all start living good lives, we're still dead in our sin. No matter what, there would come a time or already had been a time when we would have sinned and that sin would cause us guilt, just like the passage says, and from that guilt we deserve judgment and death. So tell me, what good, again, does it do? Thus indulgences, they aren't enough, are they? Living rightly isn't enough. Who can help us? We can't help ourselves, we're dead. Can angels help us? No. They can't pardon the sin of debt that sin has. And therefore they cannot give us life. Even the great beings who we often, so very often, give far too much esteem cannot even do the simple act of helping us from the grave. Because they are impotent to do so. Where then is our hope? Well, in the text above, we actually find the answer. Let me finish what Paul and Timothy said from the last chapter. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ is the answer. Jesus Christ is the one by whom we are forgiven, who gives us life, who raises us from the dead, by whom we have already been raised from the dead, and by whom we are already beginning in the kingdom of God. There, but not quite yet. So tell me, my dear friends, my family, why do we seek anything other than Christ? Why do we not heed the words of Paul and Timothy, which so clearly tell us, warn us to keep our eyes on the prize, which is Christ? When Paul and Timothy say, keep your minds on things above and seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, why do we look elsewhere? Why do we look to angels to save us or look to our own works to save us? Why do we focus so much on ourselves when Christ is right before us? Christ, who as the text says, is our life. Paul and Timothy aren't critiquing angels themselves, nor are they critiquing good works. Instead, they are reminding us of the crux of the gospel of Jesus. That is, by him we are saved. By him we live. By him we die. By him we are raised. None of these things can be accomplished by anything other than the hand of God on us. His Holy Spirit within us. Angels are wonderful. And they are used by God, it's true. Even angels minister to Christ in the desert. However, in the grand scheme of things, they're ministers. They're beings of worship to God. They're messengers, but they are not God. In fact, the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews even argues the point further than Paul and Timothy do here. I came this close to quoting the first 
chapter of Hebrews, all the way through, but decided against it. For the point is clear, Christ is above all other beings, angels or otherwise, and as such is more powerful than any others, being seated at the right hand of God where no one else is seated. This same Christ is in you. His spirit is in you. His angels come to you because the promise promise of salvation is in you, according to Hebrews 1. Thus, the only reason angels come to you in the first place is because of Jesus. Are they heavenly beings? Yes. But to focus on them in the heavens would be akin to focusing on the morning star for its supremacy as the brightest star and celestial being in our sky and ignoring the sun itself. Paul and Timothy are warning us. They're encouraging us to not do this. They're warning us, encouraging us to not get distracted by the mirages in this desert. Whether they be angels or whether they be false teachings which would tell you that you can be right with God by your own power. In either case, we see the reality that it is by Christ's power alone we are saved and we are changed and transformed by his grace alone. This salvation, this great salvation is what will cause us to be able to live rightly. By focusing on Christ, our lives will be transformed in ways which we think we can do on our own, but we can't. It is by Christ we will be ministered to by angels and will have the power to overcome demons, for he is greater than both, and he is with us. So is there a right way to live? Is there something we should seek and a place for our minds to dwell Absolutely. However, we cannot begin to believe that in living rightly, we are made right with God. No, we are made right with God not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. Thus, we are made alive by Christ, by Jesus, no longer to be dead in our sin because of him. What is so phenomenal about this? The answer is clear. That we were raised with Christ. Notice Paul and Timothy uh, use the past tense of the word raised. They don't say you will be raised. It says raised. As such, we can begin to live the life we are going to have now. That we can even seek things above. Set our minds on things above. Is evidence of this reality. That we can even seek Christ in this life. And set our minds on Christ in this life is evidence of the fact that Christ has transformed us and has begun it already. And this is just the beginning of the transformation which comes through him. Dwell on these things that we're told in these chapters. Dwell on Christ Jesus, our King who has redeemed us. Dwell on Jesus who is above all others, who watches over us, who has by his own hand raised us. He is worthy of all our praise, worthy of all the glory we can muster in this life, for he has done what we could not do. He has done what only God could do, and that is give us life from death and a place in glory forever and forever. And it's with that that we come to the gospel. And 
You know, at the Reformation, it reminded us of the gospel. It was so easy for us to get distracted um, by human traditions. And the truth is, 500 years ago, Martin Luther and all the reformers, they had to fight against the things that were so ingrained in their society. I mean, you don't really realize it, but for 1,500 years, a lot of false teachings had arisen. And that was what their society stated. It's similar to our own society that we're fighting now. The reason why it's so hard for Christians to fight against their own society is because there are certain things that we've just been taught over and over and over again. And the same is true back then. They had to themselves get broken free out of what they were being told repeatedly. Do you know how they got free of it? They went back to the scriptures. From the darkness, light. We have to do the same. We cannot get fixated on human traditions. We cannot get fixated on things that are lesser than Christ. And trust me, I see it all the time. It's not just out there in the world. It happens in congregations over and over and over again. Where instead of focusing on Jesus Christ, the Lord of all will focus on something else. And they will lose themselves because of it. You know, and that's something that the Reformation can remind us of. Um, it wasn't a Reformation slogan, but it's something that we've kind of thought of over the years. And it's, uh, I believe it's Semper Reformata, or always reforming. And it's always bringing us back. Always get back to the truth of the gospel. Always get back to the light of Jesus Christ. Because the darkness, it's around us, and it's going to try to take over. And for a lot of people, it does. How are you going to stop it from doing that? How are you going to make sure that what you believe is true? I would say the scriptures, by clinging to Jesus. And so it is that we consider all of this and we consider our origins. You know, how did God create everything? He created by speaking it into existence. And whenever I think of that, I think, wow, how amazing is our God? I can't create anything. Um, I can't even, you give me two blocks of wood, I got nothing. I got two blocks of wood. Um, some people, I don't know, David could probably make something with it. <laughs> but I can't. Bruce probably could. He made that beautiful <laughs> bookcase out there. But God, he just spoke it into existence. Think about how powerful a being he must be to be able to do that. Jesus Christ, think about what he did um, when, with Lazarus. He didn't even need to touch Lazarus. He just said, he didn't even have to see Lazarus. He just said, Lazarus, come out. How amazing is our God that he just speaks and here we are in this beautiful world. And then not only that, but he created... Do you know what? I love what Genesis says. Because what does it say about humanity? He formed us. He doesn't speak us into existence, does he? He takes the dirt and he forms us carefully, crafting us. How amazing is our God that he would take time with us? And, you know, I think about myself, and I think, I can't even do anything with two blocks of wood. Well, where, how worthy am I at all? And I'm, I don't feel like I am half the time. But yet, I go back to that, and I think, wow, I, I guess there is some worth, <laughs> worth even to me, isn't there? That means that there's worth to each and every one of you. The fact that you can love and be loved and have grace and mercy and all these wonderful things because God put his image on you. You're special. You're unique. That's awesome. But the problem is, is that we had the fall. And in the fall, you know what? We have broken relationships. Sin comes into the world. It always breaks things. 
Sin comes into the world and our relationship with God is broken. We don't have that communion anymore. Um, ourselves and our minds, we have broken minds, broken hearts, broken lives. Relationships with each other can be easily broken by simple lies, simple sins, dark sins. And then also with the world around us, which we pillage. Not how it's supposed to be. Stewards don't do these things. And so it is that we have this guilt upon us that we are worthy of judgment and death. Each and every one of us because of our sin. And that's what we find today though. How are we set free from it? We are set free by Jesus Christ alone. By God alone. That God himself reaches down into our death and pulls us out. So that you're no longer dead in your sin. You're alive in Christ. Consider the reality of that. Consider again what we read in chapter 2. How you were dead in your transgressions. You are now made alive by God. Wow. Now you can begin to live worthy of him. You can repent of your sins and turn in a direction that's toward God. You don't have to be bound to your sin anymore. You can fight it. You can be a light in this world. You've been given a duty, a privilege actually, to be a light and to be guided by God himself through his son Jesus Christ. Don't let that be a small thing. We often do. You know, I always think, um, however, do any of you ever think like about people who come in? We haven't had many, but people who come in and they talk about their their transformation or when they come to Christ and, you know, maybe it was drug abuse or some kind of, you know, thing that happens in their life and they were really deep down in it and then God pulled them out and we all think, wow, that's amazing. Like, I tend to think to myself too, that's amazing, God, to God be the glory. And then I think about my own story and I'm like, yeah, I didn't didn't have any of those issues. (laughs) I, I was just a kid growing up in a Christian home and I believe in Jesus now. That's my story. <laughs> Do any of you have that same kind of thing whenever you hear that and you think, uh, my life hasn't been like that. It hasn't been such like a bam kind of a thing. Guess what? We've kind of been deceived. <laughs> because guess what? If you are alive in Christ, there was a time when you were dead. That's nothing small, no matter how it looks. Even if you weren't in that sin, guess what? You still were dead. And you're still made alive in Christ. Glory be to God. No, don't think it's a small thing as I have in my life. It's not. It's awesome. It's wonderful. God is, God be praised. And it's through the redemption of Jesus, though, that we are able to live for him. And it's all by faith in what he has done. And that transforms your life to be able to live in repentance. You keep your eyes on Christ, I guarantee you, you're going to live as though Christ is your goal. That's what Christianity is about. It's not about whipping you in the shape. It's about recognizing that Christ has done it and then because you love him, you're going to look like him. You want to look more like that God. And so it is, it leads us to the future and guess what, we talked about it today again, didn't we? That we're going to be raised into glory. Think of that. You know, we can speculate about what heaven's going to be like. I think we've all done it at least a little bit. Think about, oh, you know, I hope that there's forests so I can hunt. <laughs> I don't. I don't really hunt. 
You know, there are times when I was younger when I thought, I really hope that there's bowling alleys, because <laughs> I like to bowl when I was younger. Um, things like that, and we kind of think, okay, well, what's it going to be like? Well, guess what? We can only speculate. We have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. You have no idea. The one thing that we're told, though, is glory is waiting for us. Glory. That you enter into the glory of God. <laughs> you know, to me at that point, when I hear that, and I think about my own life, and I think about my own struggles, and I think about my sorrow, when I think about my grief, when I think about loss, I don't care if there's a bowling alley. <laughs> I just want to be with God in glory. And I want to be wrapped up in that glory. I want to know God better than I do now. So it is. That's where we're all heading. And yeah, there is the reality that if you don't repent and if you don't change and if you don't um, put your faith in Jesus and you don't keep your eyes on him, guess what? There is another alternative and it's not glory. Paul, the scriptures talk about it repeatedly. There is the reality of hell. There is a reality of being separated from God forever. And what that looks like, guess what? That's speculation too. I don't know, but it's a separation for sure. It's better to be wrapped up in glory. That's how I look at it. So, my hope is that you would continue to keep your focus on what the scriptures keep on telling us to keep our focus on. Jesus. Keep your focus on him. Because guess what? He's seated at the right hand of God. His power is above all other powers, and he will be for us if we are in him. Let that guide your day, because we need it. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us the scriptures which continue to remind us to focus on Jesus, to not get distracted by lesser beings, to not get distracted by thoughts of we can do it on our own, but to recognize we can't. And it's okay to say that, Lord. It's okay for us to say, I need Jesus. And so, Lord, let us continue to keep our focus on him. Give us strength from your own hand to keep focusing on him. And continue to give us grace and peace and love as we continue to give grace and peace and love to each other. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. To him be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.